that this passage, which was read by Sarah for us this morning, Daniel chapter 7, 1 to 18. So we stand on the eve of a new presidency because Friday is Inauguration Day, of course. And uh, many evangelical Christians have hailed the president-elect as a savior of sorts, raised up by God for such a time as this, and they can't get him into office quickly enough. Meanwhile, others uh, have been in mourning since the election and anticipate this week's inauguration with trepidation and dread. So on, on the Sunday before Inauguration Friday, I think that it's important that we look to God's word to uh, try to get God's perspective on all this. And the passage I've chosen for this purpose is one of the most important Old Testament passages in the Bible. I, in fact, uh, I can think of very few passages which summarize the big picture of God's work in our world the way that this passage does. No wonder that Jesus referred to this passage often in describing himself and at times in describing those who opposed him. No wonder the writer of the book of Revelation drew heavily on this passage as he sketched his own grand vision that God showed him of human history and what was to come. And yet this is a strange passage, isn't it? It's weird. It's, it's a disturbing dream full of strange and terrible beasts. You, you wonder what Daniel ate for dinner the night that caused him to have this nightmare. <laughs> what does all that's in this dream mean? And, and how could it become so important as to have a key role in our Bibles? I mean, plenty of us have had really strange dreams at one time or another, but usually they're not useful to anyone else, let alone so profound to be included in God's holy word. What is up with this passage? What's so special about it? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that what we're reading here is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, literally translated, means uncovering. Picture it as taking the lid off a box to see what's inside or pulling back a curtain to see what it hides. Apocalyptic literature is, is so important and so powerful because it shows us what is really going on. It, it, if you pull back the, the curtain of history to see what's going on behind the scenes, if you pan out the camera to get the big picture, you get an uncovering, you get a revelation of what's really going on, and that's what apocalyptic does. And yet, what's your reaction when, when you read this passage? Is it, oh, I get it, it's all really clear now, that's what's going on. No, right? <laughs> because... The way apocalyptic makes everything clear is by using weird, mysterious symbols. At least they're weird and mysterious to us, but that's to some extent because these days we aren't generally familiar with these symbols. They, they might as well be hieroglyphics to many of us, right? <laughs> but if we knew the code, if, if we understood the hieroglyphics, this passage might make more sense. Well, let me give you two reasons that, that apocalyptic communicates in symbols, and then we'll see if we can decode them and see what this passage is revealing to us. So the first reason that apocalyptic communicates in symbols is because the message it contains is so scandalous, so seditious, so revolutionary, so much so that if the message was just communicated straightforwardly, those who wrote it, and those who possessed it would probably be arrested and executed for treason by the powers that be. And so apocalyptic is written in code. It's encrypted for security reasons. 
The second reason apocalyptic uses symbols is because what it wants to communicate is so much bigger and so much more profound than plain logic could tell. Apocalyptic is trying to appeal to our imaginations, to our hearts, to our emotions, to disturb us, to give us hope, to infuse us with courage. It gives us an amazing alternative way to imagine the world so that we can live faithfully and courageously in the world. For uh, you Matrix fans out there, reading Apocalyptic is like taking the red pill. All around us, everyone thinks the world is one way. But Apocalyptic wakes us up to a much different reality, to the real reality, but a reality which might be hard to believe. Because all of our life, people have been telling us something else. Okay, so that's what apocalyptic is. And, and that's why it uses weird dream-like symbols and scenes. So now that we know that, can we crack the code? Can we understand what it's saying to us? Are you ready for the scandalous, disturbing message? For a radically different way of looking at the world and seeing reality? As I describe what Daniel sees in this dream for us, again, try to picture this in your mind, okay? It's meant to be pictured. The the first image is a great sea. It's being churned up by the four winds of heaven. The winds are blowing from every direction, from all four points of the compass. This suggests totality and universality, This fourness, this universality is is also reinforced by the fact that four beasts are going to come out of this sea. So we're alerted right up front that this vision pertains to the whole world. What is about to happen is going to affect everything. And it begins with a tumultuous, chaotic, raging sea. Now, as you may know, the stormy sea is a common symbol in the Bible, and it represents chaos, uh, destruction, terror, and dread. I mean, these were the days before airplanes and huge ocean liners, global positioning devices, and helicopter rescues. And so if you went out on the sea, you were at its mercy. And Daniel was a Jew, and the Jews were landlubbers. They gravitated toward the hills where their sheep could graze in safety. The seas were unpredictable. They were untamable. They were uncharted. Maybe okay to dip your toe in on a summer's vacation, but best avoided beyond that as far as they were concerned. After all, in that day, there were tales of terrible sea monsters, of giant whirlpools, perhaps even of the edge of the earth itself, not to mention tsunamis and hurricanes. When all four winds of heaven are whipping up the chaotic sea, we are not off to a good start in this vision. (laughs) Think chaos, think danger, think evil. And in, in Daniel's dream, what comes out of this sea to terrorize the earth? Four terrible beasts, great and, and horrible monsters, grotesque combinations of animals. You have to realize that the Jewish culture was into order and keeping things separate. They, they made a religion out of keeping everything in its place. And God affirmed this uh, in them in the Old Testament. There were, there were laws about not planting purple grapes in your vineyard together with green grapes, not weaving cotton thread together with linen thread, and certainly keeping creepy crawly animals off your dinner plate. Everything belonged where it belonged with those it belonged with. And and so 
a lion with wings of an eagle or a leopard with four heads. It might seem cool to us in the days of, of sci-fi and, and computer animation, but to a Jew, this was all wrong. This was mixing things that should be kept separate. It, it would make a Jew shudder with revulsion and foreboding. And this wasn't just one beast or two beasts, but rather four beasts coming out of the brooding sea. Everything is going to be impacted. Think Godzilla. Think Clash of the Titans. This is a cataclysm to to shake the whole world. First, a a great lion, which is uh, stronger and more fierce than than, uh, any other beast, right? The king of the beasts. The book of Daniel has just told us in chapter 6 how Daniel spent a terrifying night in a den of hungry lions. And then there's a ravenous bear gnawing on the ribs of its recent victim headed out to devour more prey. And then a winged leopard. Think speed to strike swiftly and lethally with four heads no less. And then lastly, this uh, beast which commentator Tremper Longman calls the robo-beast terrifying with iron teeth, crushing and devouring and trampling whatever's left. This robo-beast has ten horns. Horns were a common symbol in the Bible for power or for kings. This is beyond terrifying. Can anyone stand against this beast? Then as we're watching, yet another horn sprouts out of this beast's head and it has human eyes, it speaks boastfully. Are, Are you letting this get into your imagination? Are you scared yet? You can bet Daniel was and and revulsed. But then at that moment, Daniel's dream takes a dramatic turn. The scene shifts radically and suddenly we're no longer by the sea shaking with fright as we watch the invasion of these fearsome monsters. No, now we've been transported suddenly to a courtroom. There are thrones signifying power to rule. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. Clearly this is God with a focus on his Eternal everlastingness. God has been around forever. He has seen worse than these beasts, no doubt. His hair is like white wool, which conveys his great wisdom, a wisdom gained through countless ages. He sits on a chariot throne with burning wheels, flaming with fire, suggesting his power to judge and to overcome. So powerful that a river of fire flows from before the throne. God's army, his attendance, his splendor is beyond number. Thousand upon thousand, tens of thousands upon tens of thousands. He's come to begin court proceedings to weigh and judge these beasts. And the verdict comes swiftly. Immediately, the last great beast, the robo-beast, is slain and its body is destroyed and it's thrown into the blazing fire coming from the throne, the fire of God's judgment. The other beasts have their authority stripped from them. They're defanged and tamed, it seems. Phew! (laughs) Just like that, relief, salvation. The, The heavenly court has decided against the beasts. They were tried, convicted, And dealt with. But the dream isn't over yet. Because now Daniel sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He enters the courtroom. He approaches the ancient of days. And he, in place of the beasts, is given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations worship him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. End of story. The good king has finally taken the throne and everyone, the whole world, lives happily ever after. Do you understand the coded message? Well, Daniel didn't. (laughs) At least he wasn't as clear as he wanted to be on all of it. But one thing he knew is that he was really troubled by it. Can you blame him? So presumably still in his dream, Daniel goes up to one of those standing around. Don't ask me who this is, but then dreams don't have to make sense, right? And Daniel asks this one for an interpretation of the dream. And what he's told is short and sweet. The four great beasts are four kings or kingdoms that will rise on the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. That's the interpretation. That's it. Is that all you want to know about what this dream means? (laughs) Well, since then, interpreters have had fun trying to figure out in more detail who these beasts are. Many agree that the first one is the ruler of, of Babylon and his dynasty. The second then is either, it's the empire that followed Babylon, so it's either Media or the combined Medo-Persian empire. In which case, the third is either Persia or Greece, and the fourth is either Greece or Rome. Then there are other interpreters who say that we can't even be that clear and we shouldn't try to figure out which kingdom the beasts represent, because remember, four is the number of the totality of the earth. And so these interpreters suggest that The beasts together represent all the beastly kingdoms of the earth. Well, what about the rest of the dream? The the Ancient of Days we saw is clear enough. That's God. But who is the one like a son of man? It's strange because he's a very human figure who's distinguished from God in the vision. And yet the interpreter of the vision uh, says he represents the people of God. So we have that on the one hand. But then on the other hand... He comes on the clouds of heaven, which is how God alone comes. And he's worshipped by everyone, and only God is to be worshipped. So who could this possibly be? So as we, as we try to crack the code, we, we still have some questions. There's still mystery here about these beasts and the Son of Man. But some basic facts are becoming clear. And when you stop and think about it, this dream is a mixed up nightmare version of the opening chapters of the Bible, the creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They also begin with the chaotic waters. And the spirit or the breath or the wind of God, it's all the same word in Hebrew, over those waters. Yet at at creation, God makes dry ground appear out of these waters and sets boundaries that the waters can't cross to protect the land from encroachment by the chaos. And on the good land, God creates beasts, not mutant, grotesque monsters, no, regular animals, each according to their kinds, the way that they're intended to be. And who rules over the beasts in Genesis 1 and 2? The man and the woman. God gives humanity dominion over the beasts to to rule like God rules after God's own image with goodness, care, and justice. But in Daniel's vision, all of this is being perverted. The mutant beasts come out of the chaos and they seize dominion of the earth. They oppress the humans until God judges them and sets a truly human one back as ruler over them forever and ever. 
Are you getting the main point? As God pulls back the curtain of history to show Daniel what was really going on in Daniel's own day, let's consider what Daniel learned. When Daniel has this dream, he's a captive in Babylon. The Babylonians have conquered the known world at the time. There's nowhere you could feasibly go in that day to get beyond or away from Babylon's reach or Babylon's power. Babylon's rule is is total and absolute at this point, at least for the people living in the ancient world. But Babylon, of course, doesn't rule with goodness or justice. No, their kings, their leaders, Nebuchadnezzar and his successors are arrogant. They're powerful. They're boastful. They set themselves up as greater than the gods. They, They redefine for themselves what's right and what's wrong. They're oppressive. They they tread on the poor and the needy. They treat human life as cheap and disposable. Daniel's own people, God's own people, have been mercilessly oppressed. His homeland, the promised land, has been destroyed by Babylon. Daniel has experienced the terror and trouble of the beasts firsthand. And yet since then, he's also benefited from the beasts. He's been promoted to the right hand of the king, as the story goes on, high up in multiple administrations, if you read the book of Daniel. Daniel's found a great career in this empire. He's received riches, influence, and honor. You wonder, as as time went on, if there was moments where he might have been tempted to think that the beasts weren't so bad after all. If so, this dream shatters that illusion. And what's Daniel's reaction to the dream? As the curtain of history is pulled back and he's shown what's really going on around him and what will take place in the future. In verse 15, Daniel says he's troubled in spirit and his mind is disturbed, right? (laughs) And then in verse 28, after the whole vision is over and he's received the interpretation, he concludes, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. He's been working for the beast, Yet, by the time Daniel has this dream in, in Daniel 7, he's, he's getting well on into his life, and he's also longing for the day when God judges in favor of his people, God's people, and rescues them from the beast and gives them the kingdom. Maybe Daniel had heard news that we know now from history of the, the stirrings to the north at this time when the Medo-Persian Empire was growing stronger as Babylon was weakening. Maybe Daniel was thinking of Jeremiah's prophecy that after 70 years, God would restore his people to their land. Everyone would go home and the hope was they would live happily ever after. But then Daniel has this dream. The day of deliverance is coming, Daniel's reassured in this dream, but not for a long, long time. God's people are going to have to wait because more oppressive beasts are coming, not just one more or two more, but three more beasts as bad as or even worse than the first beast. Until finally in the distant future, God will sure enough eventually restore his creation. God will make things right. God will humble the arrogant. God will judge the oppressors and set up a truly humane and good kingdom which will never end but will last forever and ever. That's the the imagination-provoking vision of, of true reality that God is seeking to stir in us, even though 
That's not how it may look on the surface of things. And that's the, the scandalously revolutionary uh, uh, message of, of today's passage. Can you see why it's been encrypted for security reasons? So what does this mean for us today as we look to the inauguration of a new president this week? Well, it means that there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is the reality that the seas of chaos and evil do rage, often giving birth to beastly institutions. On the surface, they may awe us with their strength, and their promises to provide for security and prosperity, but underneath, they can be arrogant and oppressive and savage. And just when it seems like you get relief from one, another follows after it. This calls for patience. It calls for perseverance. It calls for courageous faithfulness, which can only come from a deep faith in God as we wait, as we endure. If, if you read through the book of Daniel, it, it's trying to give this kind of faith and courage and endurance to us. It fortifies us with stories and examples of how to remain faithful in the midst of beastly governments. The three men in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, etc. And yet Daniel's dream gives us good news too. Judgment is coming against the beasts. God will restore his creation to the goodness for which it was always intended. Ultimately, each beastly empire, each arrogant oppressive system will be brought down, will be brought before the court of heaven to be called to account. And meanwhile, God's kingdom, a truly human, a truly humane kingdom, will ultimately prevail over all. Of course, before we go pointing our fingers at this political party or that administration or that corporation, arguing over which is more beastly, let's take a look at ourselves as God's people. Because the truth is, Jesus invoked this passage as he stood before the courtroom of the religious leaders of his day as they were passing judgment on him. Mark fourteen sixty-two. He said to the Sanhedrin, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you realize what he's saying there? No wonder they tore their robes and called for his blood. Jesus was claiming to be the Son of, God, a son of Man in Daniel's vision. And what did that make the religious leaders who were judging him and persecuting him? It made them the beasts. That, that wasn't lost on them. They thought they were on God's side. But in their religious arrogance, in their desire to maintain their own influence and their own comfort, they had become the oppressors. Which is a warning to Christians today. Lest we, grasping for influence and security and prosperity, fall into the same trap that they did. So what does this passage have to say to us? Let me suggest four takeaways, briefly. First, things are not what they seem. Savage beasts don't parade around claiming to be oppressive and blasphemously arrogant. No, they dress themselves up as something honorable. They seek our respect and our admiration and our applause. Also, they seek the worship and acclaim that we owe only to God. And they look at the poor and the weak and they write them off as losers. 
And it's easy for us to fall into that perspective. And so before we know it, even the people of God are seeking after power and respectability. And once we have it, we don't want to let it go. And this deception is so easy to fall into that God's people can even wind up fighting against God in God's name. Crucifying God's son of man. All the while thinking they're doing God a favor. Things are not what they seem. And so we desperately need apocalypses. We need the curtain of deception to be pulled back so that we can see what is really going on. So we can correct our thinking and change our hearts. And so we can check ourselves and make sure we're not really cozying up to the beasts without even realizing it. Second takeaway. When the curtain is pulled back, and we see reality as it really is, we may not like what we see. It might be a nightmare. The Bible's a realistic book. It tells us, yes, you can expect oppressors to follow oppressors in succession. In reality, beast after beast will lumber across the stage of history, blaspheming God, trampling the innocent. Yet third, we still have reason for incredible hope. Because in the end, nobody gets away with anything. The courts sit, the books are opened, and the Ancient of Days judges wisely and truly. Then God sets on the throne of history a truly human one. A son of man, one made in his own image. And that son of man will rule with humanity and truth and goodness forever and ever. Jesus came and said, I am that son of man, right? Jesus said, though even I, like you, may suffer at the hands of the beasts, God will vindicate me. God will give me the ultimate victory. And I will reign forever and ever. And so forth, this vision challenges us to wait with hope, to wait with patience, to wait with faithfulness. Always being vigilant so we don't wind up becoming like the beast and following in the beast's ways, but rather instead so that we can stand firm in the way of the Son of Man, who says to us, come, let me teach you how to spot who the real beasts are. Come, let me teach you not to follow the beasts. Come, let me teach you how to be truly human. Come follow me because my kingdom is the one that will finally prevail and endure in the end. And if you're willing to follow the Son of Man, to trust Him, to let Him be your King, then you and I can go into Inauguration Week with faith, with hope, with courage. Let's respond in worship.